Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 14. I will read the first 21 verses of the chapter. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit." speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I think most of us would agree that if we're facing a task in front of us that seems too overwhelmingly difficult, Uh, from the very outset, then we're very unlikely to really feel any motivation to want to begin the endeavor at all. All motivation, all incentive seems to seep out of us when we're staring at a task that seems beyond our capacity to complete. Maybe, if you're a student, you have felt that as you've begun to Consider an assignment that's been given to you and you think about the hours of research that, that may be involved, the difficult nature of the content for the assignment, the very unlikelihood that you will receive a, de- a decent grade on it, and it leaves you wanting to do anything else other than actually begin the assignment. That's the life of a student, often. Procrastination. Or maybe you feel that 
uh, even in your, in your work, an assignment you've been given in your vocation, or around the home, in the house. The work seems too much. Day after day, the task seems beyond what you're able to do. A good result seems very unlikely. And so you think, what's the use in even trying? Why even begin? Or maybe you feel that way in other areas, such as a difficult marriage, or challenges in parenting, difficult children, or strife in relationships with loved ones. The effort that's required seems too much. Failure looks like the only inevitable outcome, and so you wonder, is it really even worth trying? And often we feel, when we feel that way, about whatever it might be, from the classroom to our homes, a little hope goes a long way. A reminder that failure is not inevitable, that success is attainable, and that the effort is worth it goes a long way in stirring our hearts toward motivation. Now, you have not been given any promise in God's word that you will get a good grade on your assignment. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the Bible constantly gives you motivation and incentive to live the life that God has called you to live as a Christian. We live in a dark world, and yet we're told in the passage we're considering this morning that we are to live as children of light. And when we think about that charge, when we consider our call as Christians to live as light in a dark world, we may feel like those scenarios that I've just described— The world is darkened by sin and a rejection of God. It's darkened by enmity and hostility and violence and chaos, and we experience that day after day as we wander through this world. And it's a a world that's darkened by sickness and death and trials of all sorts. And as we go into the workplace or as we live among family members— who are lost, perhaps, without Christ, as we battle even the dark thoughts and the temptations of our own hearts, and we experience the weight of darkness. Maybe the idea of walking as light seems to you unrealistic and unattainable. It's just idealistic Christian talk. Is that the case? When we're called to walk as children of light, to live light-filled lives— A life characterized by purity and holiness, by hope and by joy, by worship and service to God. Are we talking about some idealistic, perfectionistic, unrealistic concept of the Christian life that's merely Christian talk? Or are we talking about reality? Well, the passage that we're considering this morning, Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 14 reminds us that when we're called to walk as children of light, we're talking about a real possibility and a real responsibility for the Christian. And Paul not only gives us the charge to walk as children of light, but he also provides us with all of the motivation and incentive that we need to do it. In Christ, we have every reason both to desire, on the one hand, to walk as children of the light— to desire it, to long for it. And on the other hand, in Christ, we've really been given the ability to walk as children of light. 
Paul's continuing in the verses that we're considering this morning, this argument that we began two weeks ago, this charge or this encouragement with regard to being imitators of God. So if you remember, very first verse of chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God. And then throughout the chapter, he, he outlines at least three specific ways that we are imitators of God, that we might imitate God. And each of those three aspects of what it looks like to imitate God have to do with the charge to walk a certain way. And so two weeks ago, we saw in verse 2 that we imitate God as we walk in love. This morning, we're considering imitating God as we walk in light. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll consider imitating God as we walk in wisdom, which is down in Uh, I believe, verse 15 of the chapter. This morning, then, we're considering imitating God by walking in light. Why should we do it, and why can we believe that we can do it? Where's the hope mixed in with the charge? And I'm going to break the verses down into four different motivations or incentives, four reasons why we should be convinced that we can and must walk as children of light. First, in verse 8, We should walk as children of light because we are light. Because we are light, in verse 8. Then in verse 9, because light is fruitful. Light is fruitful. Then in verse 10, because light is pleasing to the Lord. Light is pleasing to the Lord. And then lastly, in verses 11 to 14, because light exposes darkness. It exposes darkness. So first, we should and must and can walk as children of light because we are light. Look with me again at verse 8. Paul says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. First motivation has to do, once again, as we've seen over and over again through Ephesians, it has to do with our identity. Who are we? We were darkness, he says. Now we are light. And it is for that very reason, because we're not who we were, but we are who we are now in Christ. It's for that very reason that we should walk as children of light. Light's used a number of different ways in the scriptures, I'm sure, even as you hear the word light You can think of several passages in the Bible that speak of light. We read one earlier. Uh, Anthony read from John chapter 3. It's used a number of different ways in the scriptures. It at times refers to God's holiness and his purity. Like in 1 John, first chapter, verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's referring to his perfect and completely holy character and nature. God is holy, pure, without any hint of corruption. He is light, refers to holiness. Sometimes light refers to life. In John, the Gospel of John, verse 5, we read regarding Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light refers to fullness and abundance of life, especially as it's manifested in the person of Jesus. Sometimes light refers to knowledge, enlightenment, and understanding of who God is. In John 1, again, the Gospel of John in the first chapter, in verse 9, we read, 
there was the true light, referring to Jesus again, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Enlightens every man. The idea is that light gives knowledge and understanding. Light in other places refers to hope. We can think of Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah, looking forward hundreds of years to the coming of Christ, he says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, on those who live in a dark land, the light will shine. Darkness, hopelessness gives way to hope when there is light. Micah says the same thing in his prophecy. He says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I have hope in darkness because the Lord is my light. So light then, if we bring those, that's at least in part, some of the idea that's involved in this understanding of light. And if we bring them all together, light then, at least in part, refers to the holiness of God. The knowledge of God, the life of God, the hope of God. And then we contrast that with darkness. Darkness is everything that stands in complete opposition to and is antithetical to the light of God. Darkness, rather than holiness, has to do with corruption of sin. Darkness, rather than life, the life of God, has to do with death, separation from God. And darkness, rather than knowledge of God, enlightenment, has to do with the ignorance of God, a darkened understanding. And rather than hope, darkness is the utter hopelessness and confusion and despair of a life in sin. We have light on the one hand, holiness, life, knowledge, hope. We have darkness on the other. Darkness is the realm where sin and death and ignorance and separation from God reign and characterize everything that takes place within that realm. And that's why when we're told that we are rescued by Christ, it is said that we are rescued out of darkness. Colossians 1 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. He brought us out of that realm of lifelessness and despair and hopelessness and sin and death. And he brought us into this realm of light. And then in 1 Peter 2, we're told he called us out of darkness in order that we might proclaim his marvelous light. Salvation is light. It is the bursting forth into the life of an individual life and hope and holiness and a knowledge of God, a relational personal knowledge of God. When we're saved, we're brought into the realm of light, out of the realm of darkness. But notice that Paul doesn't say, in verse 8, that you were once in darkness, but now you are in light. He says, you were once darkness, you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. In other words, in Christ, when we are saved by him and made his own, something foundational has changed at the deepest level of who we are. Formerly, our hearts were darkness. They were the fountains of sin and corruption. That's what came out of our hearts. At the core of who we were, there was a principle that ran from God's light 
that rejected God our creator and loved sin and clung to darkness. That was the principle of our heart that worked itself out in our lives. Darkness. But when we were made new in Christ, a new principle was planted in the depths of who you are, in your heart. And this new principle is a fountain that doesn't produce corruption, but it produces what is good. God has placed something in your heart now that doesn't run from the light, but it runs to the light. We are no longer bound by the sin and death of our nature, our sinful nature. We're no longer chained to it, imprisoned by it, by darkness, but we are made alive now in Christ to live in the freedom of his life and according to his holiness. A new principle has been planted in us. A new heart has been given, or as we've read in John 3, a new birth has taken place, and you are light in the Lord. Paul's point in this verse is that because we are no longer darkness like we were, and because we are now light in the Lord, we should walk as children of light. Of course, we don't always feel like light. We still struggle, often, against the remaining effects of our sinful flesh. We still battle unbelief, doubts, discouragements, We still live in a world, as we've already discussed, of darkness and pain, sorrow. And we don't always feel like we have the power to overcome temptation and sin, or like the chains have really been broken. We don't always feel that way. We don't always feel the invigorating effects of the life of God in our soul. We don't always feel it. And so what that means for us is that to walk as children of light is a walk of faith. It is a walk that takes God at his word, believes what he has said about you, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and walks according to that truth. By his grace alone, Jesus has set you free from the bondage of your darkness. If you're trusting in him, if you belong to him, he has delivered you, from the mastery of your sin. Sin is no longer master over you. He has given you understanding, a knowledge of his goodness. He has imparted his life, the life of his spirit to your soul and has given you everything needed to walk in his light. According to his will, you are unchangeably and irrevocably in the Lord light because of him, because of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, believe it, that's who you are, and walk according to it. That's the first argument. Why should we walk as children of light? What's the motivation? Where do I find hope? Because in Christ, we are light. It would make sense that we walk in darkness if we were still formerly what we were, but it makes no sense to walk in darkness if we are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light because you are light. And then second, walk as children of the light because light is fruitful. Look at verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then jump over to verse 11. 
Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The fruit of life consists, the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth on the one hand. The fruit of darkness on the other hand is actually fruitless. The fruit of the deeds of darkness is fruitlessness. There is no fruit. Darkness always promises fruitfulness to you. And it always produces fruitlessness in you. From the very beginning of human history, that has been the lie of sin. The allure and deceit of sin has always been, we read it in the very first chapters of the Bible, taste of me, eat of me, consume me, come to me, and I will give you life. And you will know fullness of joy and peace and delight and pleasure. Just come. Take a bite. And of course, sin always comes up infinitely short on its promise. It may offer pleasure in the moment. There's certainly truth to that. But it proves utterly fruitless in the end because it always brings ruin. It always brings destruction. It always brings devastation in its wake. Romans chapter 7, and speaking about the fruit of the deeds of the flesh, it says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body. And then he says, to bear fruit for death. What's the fruit of the deeds of the flesh? Death. Always. Of course, if we're in Christ, we've been delivered from the ultimate consequence of sin and death. We, we, we understand that. But in many other ways, even as believers, when we give in to the lie of sin and we taste of its fruit, we experience the deadly effects of it and the deadly fruits of it. It numbs our delight in the Lord. It ruins very often or at least causes terrible damage to our closest relationships with others. It corrupts our witness to the world. It creates further doubts and unbelief in our heart when we, when we follow our doubts down the course of lies and sin, then it only breeds further doubts. The result of sin is always death in some fashion, always devastation, even in the life of the believer. The contrast between what sin promises and the fruit that it actually produces is why the Bible often speaks of sin as deceit, as deceitful. Hebrews chapter 3, it says that we must be very careful not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's talking to believers. Don't be hardened by its deceitfulness. And then in Ephesians 4, we saw this several weeks ago on a Wednesday evening, that the, the passions of the flesh are called the lusts of deceit. It's lusts that grab hold of a deceitful scheme. They're deceived. In John chapter 8, we're told that Satan himself is called the father of lies. Every time he tempts, he is lying, promising something good and producing only death. When we allow ourselves to live in darkness, when we allow ourselves to go through life outside of the light of God's truth and believe those certain lies, then temptation and sin flourishes in us and it produces the fruitless deeds of darkness. We believe the lies, we taste the lies, we consume them, and we experience the poison of their fruit. But Paul contrasts the unfruitful deeds of darkness with the fruit of life. As opposed to death and misery and 
ruin as a result of sin. Light produces goodness. In fact, all goodness and all righteousness and all truth. Everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that is true is always the result of light. It's never the result of doing something that stands in contradiction to the truth of God's word. So Paul is urging us then here to consider the contrast of the fruits. Why would we not walk as children of the light, trusting God for what he has said, conforming our life to his good standards, enjoying the life that he has given to us in Christ, and as a result, bearing and experiencing the pleasant fruit of righteousness and goodness and truth? Why would we forsake those sorts of things in order to pursue the deceitful, dark deeds of sin that bring about only destruction and corruption and chaos. Paul is urging us here, consider the fruit. Consider the fruit of light, the goodness of it. Consider the fruit of darkness, the death of it, and walk for your sake, for the sake of others, for the sake of God's glory. Walk as children of light. So that's the second argument then. We should walk as children of light because light is fruitful. Darkness brings death. And then third, we should walk as children of light because light is pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. Paul argues that we should walk as children of light because we do desire to please our Father. He says in verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We should walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. When Paul talks here about pleasing the Lord, I hope we understand that he's not suggesting that we try to earn something from him. He's not turning Christianity into some legalistic effort to make God pleased enough and happy enough with us to accept us and to make us part of his family. It's not what he's talking about when he says, as children of light, we should try to please the Lord. He's not saying try to please the Lord so that you'll be children of light. He's saying we are children of light, therefore we do try to please the Lord. He's talking about children of God who have been freely adopted into the family of God by the grace of Jesus Christ who in the context of that unchanging and unmerited love of our Father desire to do what is pleasing to our Father. It's a world of difference between those two things. But even as believers, we can still sometimes have a wrong idea about our ability or what it looks like to try to please the Lord. Perhaps we think that it's not really possible to please him. We still imagine that God, as our Father, is just perpetually annoyed and disappointed and angry with how far short we fall and how often we fail, and pleasing him is some unrealistic Christian talk. Or maybe we think God might be pleased with us in sort of a superficial or artificial way, but not in a way that really involves genuine and sincere delight. We think, sure, God might sort of acknowledge, maybe, maybe recognize the, the good things that we're doing, but there's not really any sense of real, true enjoyment on his part of those things. It's kind of like a, a father in a home who's busy working on something around the house and his son comes up to him excited about a picture that he's drawn for his dad. 
And the, the son comes with this picture, and he shows it to his dad. He says, Daddy, look at what I've drawn. And the dad, busy at work, looks down very quickly. Yeah, yeah, son, that's great. And then immediately turns back to his work. There's a brief, artificial acknowledgement of the son's drawing. Out of maybe a sense of obligation, he says it's nice. He, he has some appearance of enjoyment of it, but he doesn't really take delight in it. He's too preoccupied with his work to really enjoy the gift that his son had drawn, a picture that he had drawn. And perhaps that's how we think of God. Out of obligation, God gives some sort of brief, artificial, superficial acknowledgement of the efforts that we make to please him. But it's not as though his heart is really in it, or as if he really delights in it, or really rejoices in our efforts to please him. But contrast that image of that sort of dad with an image that Brian Chappell gives of a young child, three years old, who spent the first three years of his life with his grandparents in in a southern state. But at the age of three, this child uh, went back into the custody of his parents, and they had to move to California, so he's now suddenly very far away from the grandparents that he spent the first three years of his life with. But sometime later, in California, friends of this of these grandparents, they're traveling to California, and they just happen to run into this young boy and his parents. And as the, as the adults begin talking, the, the young boy, he begins reaching into his pockets and searching for something. And eventually, he, he pulls out a piece of pocket lint. It's the only thing he could find. It's the only thing in his possession. And he gives it to the lady of that couple from the southern state that knows the grandparents, and he says, would you please take this and give it to my grandmother? And the lady that he'd given the lint to, she eventually discarded it. Uh, I mean, you're not going to keep a piece of lint all the way back to a southern state, right? And she gets back and talks to the grandmother and tells her about the silly gift that her grandson had given to her. And the grandmother, heartbroken, says, I wish you'd not thrown it away. I would have been so pleased to get it because it was all that he had to give me. And Brian Chappell then explains, when we know that our meager offerings to God, the little thoughts, the little words, the little acts of righteousness that are all that we have to give, bring him pleasure, despite their inadequacies and our shame, we want to bring him pleasure. We want to bring him better gifts. When we're convinced that our feeble efforts in Christ are pleasing to our Father, that he's neither too ruthless nor too preoccupied and distracted to delight in them, then it further motivates us to want to please him and to do what is delightful to him. For those who are now in Christ through faith, it is really possible to bring pleasure to your Father. We're told in Philippians 2 that God is at work in you. Why is he at work in you? Because as God works out what is good, as he produces in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He takes delight. God takes good pleasure in the evidences of his grace being worked out in your life by your even weak and feeble efforts to please him. Consider some of the ways the scriptures tell us that we can please the Lord. All of these are said in direct connection to pleasing God. We please him by bearing fruit. We please him by believing him, by growing in our knowledge of him, 
by working diligently in our jobs and in our vocations and our callings. We please him by abstaining from immorality. We please him by being generous with our finances. We please him by obeying our parents. We please him by being faithful with the message of the gospel. The idea is simply that in everything that we do, from our workplaces to our homes to our neighborhoods to our church, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we have been given the opportunity in that place and at that time to do what is pleasing to our Father. We'll never do it perfectly this side of heaven. We certainly could never do it apart from Christ. But in Jesus, we have been given the real ability to do what is pleasing to God. And our efforts are made acceptable and pleasing to him because they're offered in faith through Jesus. Of course, the idea that God is pleased with us also means that God can be displeased with us. We've already seen weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're called not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us, who has sealed us for the day of redemption. We're not to grieve him. We're not to bring him sorrow. We're not to displease him. God never looks at sin with indifference. He loves us, and he is concerned for the honor of his name in us. And he can never be content to see sin infiltrating and penetrating our hearts and our lives. Just as any earthly father can love his children wholeheartedly and yet for that very reason be grieved when his children make foolish decisions, so also our heavenly Father who loves us is displeased and grieved for that very reason when we allow sin into our lives. And so, not only are we motivated by the real possibility of pleasing God, we're also motivated by the real possibility of displeasing the Father that we love. And those two things, the real possibility of pleasing him, the real possibility of displeasing him, lead to Paul's conclusion, therefore, try to do what is pleasing to him. That should be our heart's desire, because we can, because we love him. Walk as children of light, trying to do what is pleasing to your heavenly Father, trying to know and do what brings him delight. So that's the third motivation, then. We walk as children of light because light, as we walk in light, It's pleasing to our Father in heaven. And then lastly, in verses 11 to 14, we must walk in light because light exposes darkness. He says in verses 11 to 14, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Not only are Christians not to have anything to do with the deeds of darkness, but Christians are called to expose them, to reveal the true nature of the deeds of darkness. In verse 12, we read, It is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret or in darkness. Sin thrives in secrecy. It thrives in darkness. 
Sin thrives when it can operate with seemingly no consequences. Sin thrives when it can hide its true nature and character in the darkness. But light always exposes darkness. Imagine that you're in an old, rotten house. It's fallen apart, and you're in a, be- you're in a room with no windows, and the door is shut, and it's pitch black in the room. As long as that room is dark, you really don't know the full extent of the corruption of that room. But as you take out your flashlight and you begin to shine it around the room and you run the light across the walls, you start to see the mold and the fungus. You notice the rotten wood and the the sagging drywall. And you see the the cockroaches scurry and the mice scatter across the floor. and, And you begin to understand the nature of the room. It is rotten. It is corrupt. It is infested. The light exposes the true nature of the room. And in the same way, Christians are to be light that exposes the true nature of darkness, of a world that has turned its back on its creator. Christians are to expose the sinfulness and the hopelessness of a world that has forsaken its God. How do we do that? We do it in two ways. First, we do it with our words. Second, we do it with our works. We expose darkness with our words, and we expose darkness with our works. When we speak the truth of Christ, his righteousness, his goodness, his mercy, his love, the real condition of the human heart. When we speak truth with regard to Christ and his gospel, it is like bringing a flashlight into the corrupt room of people's hearts. And it begins to expose the rottenness and sinfulness that remains there, that exists there. We should never underestimate God's ability to use our stammering words of truth to expose darkness, and to bring conviction of sin into people's lives. Not only do we expose them with our words, but we expose them with our works. In Matthew 5, we're told that we, Jesus tells us, we are the light of the world, he says. And how are we the light of the world? What should we do as light of the world? He says, therefore, let your light shine. How do we do that? By allowing people to see your good works, that they might glorify your Father in heaven. How do we expose the darkness How do we function as lights in this dark world? We live lives of good works. Both in our words and in our works, we expose darkness. Jesus is not teaching us in any way that we are to be self-righteous hypocrites who try to do good works or speak light only out of a sense of superiority and condemnation towards others and condescension toward others. Rather, he's telling us that this dark world needs light. It needs people who are walking in the light and whose lives manifest the fruit of light. And the way the world will see light is in your life as you speak it, as you live it, as children of light. That's how darkness is exposed. But the goal, I hope we all understand, is not merely to expose it and to make people feel miserable about themselves and their sin. The goal is transformation, is a complete exchange of darkness for light. I think that's what Paul means in verse 13 when he says, But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. If you remember, back in verse 8, Paul said, You were formerly darkness, now you are light. How did you become light? Is it not true that your darkness was exposed? 
that your sin was made evident. And at the exposure of your sin, all things were made visible, and you saw the light of Christ, and you believed on him, and you became light. Is that not what happens at conversion? Paul is saying all things that are truly exposed, those things that don't run from the light and and, and hide in darkness and harden their hearts to the light, but those things that are truly exposed by the light, that come to the light, all things are made visible. They are rescued out of their darkness. They are transformed from darkness to light, and that is the aim of our lives as believers. Not to self-righteously condemn a dark world, but to graciously pursue the transformation of a dark world that it might become light. We long to see the world convicted of its sin. Not to the ignorance of the conviction of our own sin, but certainly wanting the world to see the conviction and understand real conviction of its sin but ultimately because we want the world to know Christ. That's why Paul goes on in verse 14 to say, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a call for any who are in darkness and any who desire to not be in the darkness of their sin any longer to wake up, to arise, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the promise is his light will shine on you. In other words, he's saying don't be like those in John chapter 3 that Jesus describes. Don't be those who hate the light because they love the darkness. Don't be those who hide from the light because they love their sin. Don't be those who refuse to come to the light because they don't want their sin to be exposed by it. Paul's saying, don't remain in the darkness and the misery of your sin any longer, but arise, awake, come to Jesus, and the light of Christ will shine on you. Yes, the darkness of your sin will be exposed. You will see the true condition of your heart, but you will see a Savior who has loved you and who has given himself up for you and has bled in your place and has entered into your darkness and the punishment and the wrath that is due to you because he loves you and he can redeem you, he can rescue you, he can transform you, he can take you from the current condition of your dark despair in your sin. He can make you light in the Lord, give you hope, give you life, give you peace, give you holiness. Paul is urging all of us, if we are Christians and we've begun to slumber, he's saying, awake, Christian. Awake. You are a child of light. Awake. Don't live in the darkness and deceit of this world any longer. Awake. Remember who you are. Christ will shine on you. If you're not a Christian, If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're still in your sin, we are hearing from God himself this morning, awake, arise, come to life, come to Jesus and find him to be the light of life and hope. The world is dark. There's no doubt about it. We live in a discouraging place so often. There are good things in it. There are things that we can enjoy, good gifts that God has given us, but we all feel We all experience 
the reality and at times even the oppression of the darkness of this world. But the darkness of this world is not reason for us to walk in darkness. In Christ, we can and we must walk as children of light because we are light in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, how often we rest content to live with such little light from you. How often we give in to the darkness of our feelings, darkness of our circumstances, darkness of our doubts. We fail to turn to you again and to your word and to Christ himself and find light. But Father, we thank you that you have definitively and forever rescued your children from the dominion and the domain and the rule of darkness, and you have once and forever brought us into the realm of your light, where there is life and holiness and the knowledge of you and hope in this age and in the age to come. And Father, we pray that you would cause us as your people to experience and to believe and to rest assured of what you have done for us through Jesus, who himself is light, Help us to believe you, take you at your word when you tell us that in him we are light. And we pray that you would cause our hearts to long to live as light in this world and that our lives of light would cause good fruit in the lives of those around us. We need your continued mercy and strength and help to even begin to face that task. So we pray that you would strengthen us as your people to walk as children of light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.